A young boy is woken from sleep by his mother's screams. She is being attacked by an intruder and is shot. His mother survives. The boy's father is eventually convicted of hiring a hitman to murder his wife. That little boy grew to manhood and is then charged with killing his own wife, their three children and the family dog. Is there something in the water or is there something in the family genes? Both men were expert liars. When their charade became overwhelming, it took extraordinary illogical steps to stop the merry-go-round. These are the cases of Robert and Anthony Tote, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Murder Me Monday podcast. I'm Cameron and joined with me as mother. Hello. This might be our first podcast on Patreon. Yes, Depends if we've actually bothered to set up properly or not, which is a (laughs) running theme of this podcast of I Can't Be Asked. A bit more than that. We're frantically busy with our own lives as well, but yeah. So I wrote most of this up months and months ago for a Christmas episode, only to find it hadn't gone to trial. This is the one where I forgot I lost two years, Cameron, like most of the world, didn't I? Yeah, you told me about this. (laughs) Yeah, you you said it was like the Saturday, the day before we'd record. You'd be like, I've done it. Oh, fuck. (laughs) And then we we didn't have a case that week or something, so we had to like no, sprint I, to get I, something. I was up writing at six o'clock in the morning to, to get a case out for that one. Yeah. So it's, it became a bit of a rewrite because what came out during the trial in April 2022 is actually interesting. We have an attempted murder and a family annihilation this week from the USA, two for the price of one. Robert is the father of our main subject. And the case is often only mentioned in passing. And there's so much more to it. And the possible influences on his son, I don't think one can do justice without the other one, as it were. So Anthony, with an H, will stick with his normal abbreviation of Tony. Although the father seems to have stuck with the long form of his name, didn't go by Bob or anything. So back to the beginning and good old Robert. It's 1980. So most of the news reports are microfiche, and it's a mixed bag of information on what happened. 19th of March, 1980, Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. Young Tony, who was four, was asleep at home when he awoke to the sound of his mother screaming. Tony walked up the hallway and saw one man wrestling with mummy on her bed before another man picked him up and took him back to his own bed. In some places, it's mentioned that the man had a cross or a T drawn on his forehead and that he's never been identified. His mother, Loretta's memory from that night, wasn't at all clear. She remembered that she tucked her two children, Tony and his sister, into bed and then went to bed herself. Robert, her husband, was out for the evening. She woke up later that night to find one man in bed with her and another one standing in the room. The next thing she remembered was feeling pain in her head and looking at the mirror and seeing blood. She used the family's telephone to call a neighbour and the police arrived just before midnight. She was taken to hospital and treated for a gunshot wound, first thought to be a beating. That actually caused her to lose her left eye and she later required an artificial eye. To this day, there are still fragments from that bullet in her brain that cannot be removed. So, who was Robert Tote? He was a special education teacher and a wrestling coach employed at a high school in Ben Salem. He and Loretta married in November 1974 after dating for some five years. 
they had two children and life seemed very ordinary. When the police are searching a local creek looking for a weapon, they see Robert with Tony just watching them. Obviously, they know who he is, so they ask him what he's doing there, and he said he was just taking Tony on a fishing trip. And I don't think there was a fishing rod or a pole in sight. Four months later, on July the 25th, 1980, Robert Tote was arrested and charged with trying to kill his wife in a murder-for-hire plot. It is reported that when he was told he was being arrested for the attempted murder of his wife, he said, So what? Robert had told his wife he would be at Trenton State College that night for night classes. I was looking to take his master's degree. Police later learned that he had never enrolled in that college. The night his wife was shot, Robert was actually with a former student with whom he was having an affair and was engaged to be married. The two had even taken photographs cutting a cake to celebrate their engagement and set a wedding date. He's married, remember? Divorce has never been mentioned. Oh, and another woman testified at trial that he was also involved with her. So he was cheating on his wife and his fiancée. And what's even creepier is that the reports have the other woman as actually being a 17-year-old girl. I couldn't have the energy for that. <laughs> One person's enough. I've got a busy day. I'm tired. I can't be asked. Imagine running about for th- with three people. Two. Of- One of them's enough. Stop it. And trying, you could, no, you could, I couldn't keep my life straight. One of his other former students, a John Chairmont, who had been at the high school's programme for students with learning disabilities, testified at the trial that he shot Loretta after Robert Tote paid him $800. According to court records, John had a criminal record and a history with alcohol and drugs. Apparently, Robert gave John a 32 caliber pistol, bullets and the keys to the family house and told him to enter in, stage a burglary and shoot his wife. But this was the second attempt. Robert had actually gone to John's house three days earlier and woken him up, driven him to where his wife worked, told him to kidnap her, drive her up to a back road and kill her. Apparently, John was too scared, so the plan didn't happen. When Robert gave John the gun, he asked him, you know how to use the gun? John said, sure, sort of. He said, you might want to go out and practice. So John invited, was invited to a christening in Ben Salem. Unrelated to all of this, the buddy invited him. He showed up drunk. And as he leaves the christening, he goes to a lot across the street and starts to test fire the gun in broad daylight. The priest who was performing the christening stopped in the middle of the blessing and said, I hear gunfire. By then, John had finished practising and returned back to the christening. So this is the man that's meant to be reliable enough to yeah. be your hitman. W- would you trust a colleague? I wouldn't trust a colleague to help me move house. Never mind to kill someone for me. We have a history of people that don't know how to hire hitmen, don't we? This is the fourth one or something where people yeah. tried to hire a hitman and been utterly incompetent. Mm-hmm. Do it yourself. Mm. So apparently, drunk on blackberry brandy, which sounds rather nice, I must admit, and high on qualudes. 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 He enters the Tote's house, went upstairs and shot Loretta Tote. So I knew Quaaludes, but not a lot about them. I thought it was a bit like LSD from the 1960s hippie era. But apparently it's actually a brand name, also known as Softball or something by pharmaceutical companies. The generic name for it, it was Methoqualone. 
Sounds about right. I it's featured heavily in Wolf of Wall Street. That's the drugs that they take in that most. I know it's back in fashion again. I, I don't know if they've even made anymore. Yeah, they are. I yeah, it was first synthesized synthesized in India in 1951. By 1955, it was being prescribed in Britain under the name of Mandrax, and it's a name still used today. So it has to have a therapeutical benefit for it to be produced by a pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about it. I know a lot about performance enhancing drugs, not recreational drugs. So yeah. I don't actually know much about this apart from it was in Wall Street. Well, it's a recreational drug, but obviously it was originally, it was... For, for well, well, you're, no, you're saying that if it's being manufactured, it means it has to have a therapeutic purpose. Yeah, but the side effects are pretty... Um, mm. You get an intense and euphoric high, drowsiness, lethargy. You run the risk of seizures, kidney or liver damage. You could end up in a coma or you could die. You get that from ibuprofen though, don't you? Yeah. Well, mix that with alcohol, and well, you have a date rape drug that's still in use and has been mentioned in connection with a certain disgraced comic who was recently released from jail. Now, after that drug awareness lecture... Is that Cosby? Yeah. Is he still alive? Yeah. No. Yeah. So for his role in that crime, John was sentenced to two to four years in Bucks County Prison. Some places he said it was a drug rehabilitation hospital and he cut a deal to testify against Robert. Prison and the hospital may be the same thing, sort of like our Broadmoor, I wondered, because the internet searches didn't reveal anything on that. John's testimony and police statements are problems enough. He gave four different versions, one of which that was Robert was helping him with the job application and Robert testifying in his own defence that he was helping him with the application. Throughout Robert's trial, his wife, Loretta, maintained his innocence, testifying on his behalf. I'm not sticking up for him because he's my husband. I'm sticking up for him because he didn't do it, she's quoted as saying. After a lengthy trial, he was found guilty of attempted homicide, criminal conspiracy and criminal solicitation. Again, old reports say the wails of his wife and mother filled the courtroom. In April 1981, he is sentenced to two consecutive terms. So back to back to probably keep him in as long as possible of five to 10 years in prison. So he would have to serve 10 to 20 years. I know I understand nothing of any sort of judicial judicial system. Why is someone sent to two life sentences for only trying to kill one person and not actually even doing it? It seems so unreliable. Is is it used as a deterrence for other people to then not do it? But I just don't understand. I don't understand how someone can commit huge scale financial fraud and still billions or hundreds of millions and get like six months. That's always been the argument. And then some fella can sell weed and get 10 years. Yeah. It's the charge. It's the charge that you are um, given would then dictate what the length of sentence would be. So if you've got three charges... It's only attempted murder. It's not even full murder. I'm not saying you should get let off with six, six months in prison. You should go to prison and sort of think about what you've done. You know, Go to your room and think about what you've done. But to get ten, two consecutive life sentences, it just seems like a disproportionate thing to me. But it was the, the sentencing guidelines, which only five to ten years. So, you know, it, and it, it's also as well, they sometimes will throw three, four, five charges at somebody because they are worried they might get off on some of them. And then, next, but and then is, they get clobbered with all of them. Isn't that like IVF when they... Put in six put, embryos. Put, put yeah. in too many eggs and stuff, and then some eggs suddenly have 16 kids. Yeah, that's, yeah, definitely is what's happened. So, Loretta so believed him, she would take the two children to visit him in prison. And I can't imagine how traumatic that would have been actually for the children. 
But later Loretta filed for divorce, but continued to live in the home where she was shot. She'd moved Tony into a different bedroom in the hopes of stopping his nightmares. I'm guessing therapy wasn't available or out of reach or had even been offered or occurred to her. I did read in one place that Tony had been um, having therapy for years, but that was the only one place. And I couldn't see where they'd gotten their information from. I've not read it anywhere else. That's got to be for the potential trauma of this, right? It's yes. N- it's not just for other reasons. And I don't know why. When you're saying Tony got moved to another room, I can't see Tony as being a child. He's only four. Yeah. To me, Tony's a bloke. Yeah. That's a man. Mm. I, I, I need to get in my head that he, this at this point, he's a four-year-old child. Yeah. I was also wondering a few other things about Loretta. That fragments of bullets being left in her brain. Do you remember the Oberhansley case? I do. I've got that written down on my notes. There, here, <laughs> yeah, lead being leached into the body. Would that explain some of the daft decisions she made? Or did it, the husband have him sold After or something? After a period of time, I imagine it's, it's, it's probably due to chronic exposure, not to acute exposure to it. If it's in your body for a short span of time, you, you can't be having weird psychological effects at that point. Well, she... Five years later, if she's doing weird stuff, shouting at cheese in Tesco's, and yeah, that, that can explain <laughs> she's it. Doing what? Shouting at cheese in Tesco. <laughs> so, eventually, Loretta moves out of the area, and she then almost seems to regain her sanity. She now absolutely believes that Robert was did what he was convicted of. Robert admitted to the affair with the student, but for years denied hiring John to kill his wife. He filed several appeals and lawsuits, including a $30 million lawsuit against the police and prosecutors for what he believed was an illegal arrest and unlawful trial. And buried in the appeals paperwork, there is a mention that during a police interview, Robert hinted he was involved with organised crime. And the prosecution used that against him in court and they shouldn't have done. He also didn't like the fact that the prosecution called him cold, calculating, callous and arrogant. Whatever he was, he certainly wasn't a sympathetic defendant, was he? All that went nowhere, really, except in April of 1984, so three years after his original trial, he returned to the county court and was resentenced to a maximum of five to ten years in prison after the Superior Court found that his original sentence was excessive. Okay, so I was right. Yeah. So I he's feel validated. Out. Yeah, okay. He's out. Robert and Loretta both moved on and remarried. In 2014, John, that useless hitman, couldn't keep out of trouble and found himself back in court, accused of setting an arson to commit insurance fraud. I don't know what happened, but I'm guessing it wouldn't have been good, not with his record. So... That boy, Tony, was four years old when it all happened. He would have heard his mother being shot, possibly saw the blood, still lived at the same house, and his mother and grandmother would have been daddy's innocent, bad police, etc. And then, boom, mother decides that by moving them away from the house, she's got clarity, realised all the lies and gaslighting were real, and somehow Tony's supposed to be okay. And his poor sister, I know she was younger, but not by much. And I, I just hope she doesn't have any memories of that night. Her being so young is probably a good thing. Yeah. Do you not going to have the memories of it? You'd hope so. She was only about two, I think. Loretta's obviously processed it and dealt with the trauma of it. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently realised. But maybe the lead helped. But with <laughs> but with Tony, he's not had that opportunity. Being four, going through it, he's not going to understand it. And then his mother suddenly changing his tone, changing her tone. Yeah, exactly. Might, could confuse someone. And he could then still think his dad's innocent this whole time. Mm-hmm. Could cause some weird conflict. Yeah. 
So we don't know an awful lot about Tony's youth, apart from obviously what he'd seen there. But he did qualify uh, with a degree in psychology, which that interested me. And he went on to get a master's degree and qualified as a physical therapist. I thought they were the same as physios in the UK, but apparently not. He's also a national certified sports and conditioning specialist and a Nesta, whatever that is, speed, agility and quickness coach. He'd be the kind of person that would train NFL athletes with that kind of qualifications. So a physiotherapist would be the someone that deals with the, the impacts of being an athlete or the wear and tear. He's a strength and conditioning coach. But he's not a physiotherapist, he's a physical therapist. Yeah, fuck it, it's the same thing. Let's be honest, it's the same thing. Well, I suggest you go and have a look at a picture of him then if you think that's what he was qualified in because would you take advice from Um, this guy? It it doesn't matter. Look at at some of the really successful NFL coaches. Those motherfuckers at £450, when they go, their stomach jiggles. (laughs) That doesn't matter. Just because they might be bad at actually doing it themselves doesn't mean they're not good at knowing what you need to succeed. And the guy is licensed in California, Florida and Connecticut. So all those licenses, that costs money. He married his high school sweetheart, who was two years younger and in the same profession, even went to the same university as him, set up his own business and had three children and got a family dog. All good, right? Not really, or else we wouldn't be here. This story started when Tony was but a nipper in Pennsylvania. It ended via Connecticut in a place called Celebration in Florida. According to a very dry comment made by an Australian news website, the town was a cross between the arrangement of the first Stepford Wives film or The Truman Show. <laughs> Got a lot of the Aussies. And according to Wikipedia, its master planned community located near Walt Disney World Resort and originally developed by the Walt Disney Company. The town, whose population was about 7,500 in 2010, yet by 2016 the place was so dilapidated and falling apart, owners couldn't sell the properties. And for a place that small, it had six churches plus at least two other church groups. So, when I said via Connecticut, it's a place called Colchester, which is north of New York. Again, looking at a map for those of us that wouldn't know, it's roughly 1,200 miles by road between Colchester and Celebration. It seems Tony had set up in Connecticut, a business that was initially started out very well, even opening a second site in the same town. Lots of patients and his wife worked with him. But over time, with three children, I'm guessing she took a major step back and trusted him and wasn't working in the business and wouldn't know. Okay, sorry, I just I just Googled it. From the from the most northern tip of Scotland to the southern coast of England is about 600 miles. The motherfucker drove, drove from Scotland. They drove from Scotland to England and back again. That's Wait, the kind of distance. He didn't actually drive in the end. He used to catch a plane down. Okay, because when he said 200 miles, I'm like, how, how big is that? And then yeah. we live in England, which is... He can fit into Florida three times or something dumb. So, yeah, those kind of distances confuse me, and I just had to look. It, sometimes you have to get it into context, don't you? So, for whatever reason, his wife and the children were down in this celebration place. He's left to his own devices, and as I said, he would fly down to Florida every weekend. Even flying, it's still got to be exhausting. I know Americans do tend to jump on planes the way we do on trains, but... Mm. Don't even need passports. Not for internal flights. No. So well, it's, it's super easy. They, yeah. they, there's like, apart from taking your shoes off to go through the airport, there's barely any, it's super easy. So why wouldn't you? I, I would. If, if I had to go to Birmingham, I'd get a flight. It would be easy. It takes a lot longer though. It can do with all the waiting around, certainly these days, but anyway. 
So there was no mention of owning a property in Connecticut, and they definitely didn't own the house that they were living in Florida, which may be significant if he's spending a stack of money in rent. Anyway, 15th of December, his wife and children are seen at one of the holiday events in celebration and later appear to be packing a car. That may be significant. It seemed that they'd lived there for a few years by that point, so people did know them by sight. Again, invisible a bit because the children were actually homeschooled, so it's easier to drop out of sight. They're nothing. Actually, no one had seen or heard of them, from them at all, Tony included. 29th of December 2019, police got a request from another family member who lived outside the state of Florida, and I was 99% sure when I read that that it was his sister, to check the well-being of the family because she'd been told that they'd had flu and she'd not heard from them for two days. It is confirmed at trial that it was his sister, and the worrying part was that Megan, her sister-in-law, had spoken with her on the 26th of December and started talking about the end of the world coming and a rapture. And if you ever read or hear any of the cult stuff, that's usually a red flag. I know some religions talk about it, but it's never a good thing to hear about that. The police went to the home but weren't able to contact anyone inside the house and did not observe anything suspicious. On the 6th of January, again, some family members get a text from Tony and then silence. No one can reach them. And unfortunately, the police had nothing to go on and no reason to break into the house. As in, they knew they did travel between Colchester and Celebration. They'd seen packing that car. And so that's maybe why, a reason why they didn't escalate it. The family are worried by that point. I'm guessing the wife family is too. So they set up a missing persons page on Facebook, as people do. Federal agents got in contact with the local police. Well, the Sheriff's Department, actually, on January the 9th. And on the 13th of January, they both rocked up at the house to serve Tony with a warrant for fraud. Fraud, I hear you say. What for, you ask? By the time this all took place, Tony's business was in big trouble. His licence to practice expired in September 2019 and his wife was due to expire shortly. Significantly, it seemed all his appointments after Thanksgiving, so November 2019, had been cancelled. He obviously had no income. He was being investigated for fraud by the authorities. Basically, he was billing Medicaid and insurance companies for things that the patients didn't have treatment for. And that fancy house him and his wife and the children lived in, that was rented, and he was behind with the rent on that. And again, that's significant. The landlord filed an eviction notice on the 22nd of December and served it on the 26th of December, so Boxing Day 2019. The electricity was apparently cut off the same day. This house was in a gated community. It had a pool, a separate apartment over the garage. It was nice. The fraud was estimated at £130,000 and the rent he owed was estimated at £6,000. That's not that much. No, but it's enough to tip people over the edge. It turns out this creative accounting had been going on for years, at least since 2015. So we're in 2019, so four years. Tony owed, in addition, 99000 to creditors in New York. Anthony and his 
company Performance Edge Sports LLC were hit with three lawsuits in the past year, according to court records, and owed money to over 20 different lenders. The physical therapist settled one lawsuit just days before the alleged murders, but had not settled two others. In three cases, he had accepted investor funding for his business and then defaulted on the payments. In addition, a £278,000 judgment, he also owed 64000 and 36000 in two other cases. So that's a lot more if you add that into the 130000 It's like 500k in. And then some, yeah. So it's unclear why Tony decided to pay off the largest judgment, but not the $6,000 in rent to avoid being evicted from the family home. Tony and his wife actually owned a condo in celebration, which was only 500 feet away from the house that they rented. Would him paying off the the lawsuit be because it's to do with his company? Is, is it him or his company specifically? Because if it's his company, then... You might be able to. Do you know what I mean? You might be able to then like declare bankruptcy on that versus the private stuff. Yeah, I don't. There could be some weird conflict with it. I genuinely don't. I, know. I would pay off the house. So you have somewhere to live while you sort this out. But yeah. that's just me. Yeah. So they they owned this house. It was only this condominium that was only five hundred foot away, and it had an estimated value of two thousand two hundred thousand. Sorry. They seemingly bought it in two thousand and five, not long after they got married, and when the children came along, they outgrew it. Over the years, multiple liens have been placed on that condo, according to property records. And it was in foreclosure, according to various reports, and he hadn't paid for that in over a year. Tony knew about the fraud investigation. His business had been raided on the 21st of November. He took full responsibility at the time and said his wife knew nothing. Staff wage checks started to bounce. He stopped turning up to work. The star stopped turning up and basically both sites just stopped opening. As I said, all the appointments after Thanksgiving were cancelled. I don't know if it was one of these things where a company got too big too quick, but this guy is drowning in debt. I don't understand how he's got a successful business plan, essentially, to have have all these different people working for him and he's bringing in money. Is he just overspending at the top? Seems to be. But 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 I don't understand on what, though, because obviously they're expensive houses and get your community with a pool. It doesn't seem to be that he's... I mean, he might have a substance abuse thing that we don't know up until this point, but I don't, I don't know what's costing him so much. No. Because he, he sounds like he's making good money from it, so... Well, he's paying out an awful lot of money on rent, an awful lot of money, because he's renting two business premises. He's also renting that house. He's not paying his mortgage off on the condo. They've got loans out on that. I just think it's one of these things that's just snowballed and gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Then he's been sued left, right and centre. But isn't he being sued left, right, and centre because he's not paying? Part of that, yeah. So then, it, so, so if you'd start oh, no. paying, then you, and, and I don't understand, I'm kind of confused as to how it's gone downhill because it doesn't sound like I it's an unsuccessful business I don't think anybody understood plan. it. No. So back to the raid on the house in celebration. Tony didn't open the door. They forced entry with a warrant they had, and of course the smell hit them, so they went in on high alert. Tony was upstairs and came down shouting at them, but he could barely stand was shaking, was bleary-eyed. Remember the flu excuse to the relative before? I think he was trying the same thing with authorities. He admitted he'd taken Benadryl. They called paramedics because obviously they know something's wrong with him and have to play it by the book. And he tells the paramedics it was an attempted overdose. 
But once he was down the stairs, the agents immediately asked him where Megan and the children were, having seen no sign of them in the house. He said Megan was upstairs sleeping and he called for her like she was alive, the detective said. We asked where the children are and he said, I don't know, I can't remember, I don't remember if they went to a sleepover last night. Police head to the main bedroom and spot six pairs of feet. They ask Tony where the third child was and he says she, he thinks she's in another room. So they kick the door down, she wasn't in there. They go back to the main bedroom and they find Tony's wife lying on her bed with her daughter wrapped in blankets at her feet and her two sons on a mattress on the floor. All of them had more blankets over the top of them. I don't know if the dog was in there, but I know he killed that dog also. When I read that in the show note thing, I literally went, why? Why did he kill the dog? Yeah, I'm immediately going, poor Boris, but it's not. It's still a bee now. I'll give it to you in a minute. The description of the bodies is unpleasant. They were described as black, like leather, almost mummified. So they cart Tony off to hospital with concerns for his mental state. They have to be very careful. And he is held under what is known as the Baker Act 1971. Now, I'd heard about the Baker Act, didn't really understand what it was, so did a little bit of research. And apparently admissions can be voluntary or involuntary. And there has to be a reason to believe that a person has a mental illness and that because of the mental illness, the person has refused to be examined. And it, there's, a, there's a, the whole rake of things behind it, but it's quite interesting that they use that to hold him. But after two days, he is arrested and he waives his Miranda rights. And I don't know the reason why it goes to a grand jury, but it does. And it's fast. The grand jury indicted Tony on four counts of first degree murder and one of animal cruelty in February of 2020. It was then announced that the district attorney would seek the death penalty, although they'd previously said they wouldn't use it. Apparently, a review board said that in this case, they should seek it. So he's remanded in custody. I don't get why some murderers are let out on bail, but bearing in mind it's usually a money-driven system. And he admitted he had nothing except a car, which he said was worth maybe $1,500. And as he was flat broke, he wanted a public defender, obviously. So his arse is behind bars while they build the case. Now, this is where this prat can't keep his gob shut. It's a bit garbled. It's from a newspaper, not a transcript. But he had a phone call with his sister. They're all recorded, remember. And he says, I'm in an isolation type cell wearing a vest only for at least six weeks, they've been telling me. I don't remember anything pretty much over Christmas. And the first week I got here, I don't remember coming here. I don't remember anything from the events after that happened, that kind of stuff. I have no idea where I was, where I am. And the only thing I remember is being at the hospital. I assume before I got here and I remember talking about it and that's all I remember. I remember waking up here, seeing one of the officers and I've been become pretty close with. Other than that, I've got no idea about anything. And he said, I want you to know a couple of things that I absolutely loved, honoured and obeyed Megan through everything. Because a lot of things will come out and I can't talk about it right, right now. Realise, OK? He also said his last recollection was searching for his daughter's Mickey Mouse necklace when he blacked out. Before questioning the validity of his own confessions, he says, yeah, I have no idea what I told investigators. Just know that I will protect Megan's dignity until the very end. And he asked this relative to find a Mickey Mouse necklace for his daughter. Uh, it's really quite odd. 
you remember his lovely daddy-o? Tony and Robert hadn't had any sort of relationship growing up. Prison visits and his mum seeing the light is my guess. But for whatever reason, these two start writing together to each other when Tony is in jail awaiting trial. He says in a letter to his father, long story short, she gave them Benadryl, Tynolol, separated them, woke up at 11.30pm, stabbed and then suffocated each one, took a whole bottle of Benadryl herself and then stabbed herself in the stomach. It's at the news of this, he says. I ran to the bathroom and puked. I was weak. It was just a strange statement to make. Tony claimed his wife took her own life and she had been suffering from depression and other illnesses, including Lyme's disease, in the years leading up to her death. He alleged that Megan had confessed to killing their children to him and she had released their souls. He also claimed that Megan then took her own life despite his protestations and that he hadn't been able to find the phones to get help. And he also goes on to say, I would have called a press conference months ago, but I was told by my attorneys, who happened to be some of the best in the state, that that was not the appropriate way to handle the case. So I just sit in idle, making a list of lawsuits for when I get out. Like his dad tried, yes. He claimed he was 1,000% innocent of all these preposterous charges and he wanted to correct all the inaccuracy from the creative writing machine in apparent reference to the news media and the police. So we've gone from, I love my wife and my family and they're an innocent to a Chris Watts type of event, defence in that she did it, it wasn't me. So if you know who Chris Watts is, you'll get the reference. The medical examiner's office release a partial report with the family's cause of death before trial. And I don't know how common that is. And I think we may have got a vague statement from the police, but nothing like this would be released in case the defence wanted to challenge it in the UK and get their own experts in. So anyway, here comes the mildly gruesome stuff. And I won't go into the very complex toxicology report. Suffice to say that they had all been drugged with Benadryl but the method of drugging was unknown. It was tablet form that Tony took, but I saw pictures of the same stuff in liquid format, so it could have easily been fed to them in that way. They'd all had different doses that didn't quite measure up due to the mummification. They couldn't say what levels somebody... They all had different levels in their blood, but they couldn't say how much they'd been given because of this mummification process. Megan had been stabbed twice, the boys once each, and the little girl, they simply didn't know how she died. Both the boys were wearing rosary beads, which seemed a little unusual. It's not something you would wear as jewellery, so maybe it was sort of a Catholic guilt repentance thing. Police at the time thought he'd drugged them and suffocated and then stabbed them. January 2021, so a year after the murder. The district attorney changes their mind about seeking the death penalty. Said Tony's mental state concerned them, so they were taking it off the table. As this DA had always been against the death penalty, I guess it wasn't really a surprise. February 2021, the fraud case was dismissed. Federal prosecutors said it could wait the outcome of the murder trial. The defence gets cracking on what they can get thrown out. They asked the judge to rule the prosecution cannot mention the crime scene as the murder scene 
and the English translation of Tony's surname from its Germanic original. I'll get into that in the end. So flash forward to 10th of September 2021, just before the trial is about to start. Tony's defence attorney tries to get his confession thrown out, said his mental state meant he had been unable to execute a knowing, intelligent and voluntary waiver of his Miranda rights, which he had waived, hadn't I'd, he? I would agree with that at this point. Yeah. He's not in the he's not in sound of mind, is he? No. Well, mm. Then on the 16th of September, his defence attorneys tried to get the crime scene photos of his family thrown out of evidence along with the fraud charges. The fraud charges I kind of get, but the reason for the fraud charges are probably material. And they go to the reason why they were killed was money saving face. But or they also used the he also used the business to borrow from the 20 different lenders in in one month alone 2017 the business had taken out nearly $100,000 in short-term loans i i'm like you i would want to know where the hell all this money because it's a lot of money by anybody's standards the photographs I also get while they wanted thrown out as they were described as shocking and not materially relevant as they showed the decomposition and not the cause of death. And even his confession said he strangled them and the ME couldn't determine due to the state of the decomposition. The trial was due to begin on the 27th of September, but the prosecution asked for it to be pushed back to the 1st of November. There were more pushbacks and motions, such as excluding the fraud trial, which was granted, and excluding various statements he'd made at the police station, as the police officer didn't have his Miranda card on him when he arrested him, and he tried to recite it from memory and he missed a bit out. When they realised that they'd done that, they did it properly, but it got the first statement thrown out. And then Tony's defence attorney died. (laughs) That's, that's, that's really ironic now, isn't it? It's, it's kind of going well and he just fucking dies yeah. out of nowhere. So finally... I, um, didn't ex- I didn't expect that. No, I was, I, I was. when I read that, I was like, what? Finally, on Monday the 4th of April, 2022. What happens if a judge dies? Does the trial start again? Yeah. It has to, right? Yeah. I mean, with this one, that's why it would have been held up because... If my lawyer died, I'd be like, fucking, we're starting again because I can't have some random guy start halfway through. Well, they, did, they didn't actually, they hadn't actually started the trial, but obviously they got it delayed because a new attorney would have to be brought up to speed with absolutely everything, all these shenanigans. But talk about stepping into dead man's shoes. Oh, no. Monday the 4th of April, the trial started. He was charged with four counts of premeditated murder and one count of animal cruelty. He pled not guilty and the trial was scheduled to last two weeks. The prosecution asked the judge to refuse to let in any evidence in regard to capacity as he pled not guilty, but not by reasons of insanity. He just pled not guilty. But if someone isn't saying they're not going to be the wherewithal to, to do it, are they? You would think not, but you would also think that their attorney would then say to the judge, there's a problem. It, it goes back to what I said before. Three of his, four of his family die. They're essentially mummified. He's hopped up on Benadryl. They've been mummified for a long time. His business has crashed around him. That doesn't happen unless someone is, isn't fully mentally capable at that period of time. There's something definitely wrong. So surely that should be considered. Well, the defence asked the judge to allow those statements because whilst they were not claiming diminished or anything similar, such as the McNaughton rule, which comes from the 1840s and basically means not guilty by reason of insanity or guilty but insane, 
but the fact that it had been initially held on the Baker Act, it could allow for some of the evidence, all the statements to be brought in. But he isn't mad. So please let us show you that he has said stuff that makes him mad. That's basically what the defence has said. He isn't insane. We've got no evidence that he is insane. But because he said these things, it shows he's mad. Yeah, I like it when this happens because I feel validated now because that's what I said, yeah. isn't it? So his confessions are revealed at trial. Um, they were taken as statements on the 13th and 15th of January 2020, so a couple of weeks after he killed his family. Sometime between December the 14th and Christmas of that year, he was unclear when, Tony went into his daughter Zoe's bedroom, sat with her, and then rolled on top of her until she suffocated. Yes, he rolled on her. If you've seen pictures of him, like I said, he was obese. He was massively overweight. So I can believe he managed that. But either way, to kill someone like that, deliberately, a four-year-old child. He then goes into the bedroom that Alec and Tyler shared. Alec was in the room. Tony suffocated and then stabbed Alec in the abdomen. Tony was apparently worried about Tyler, who was the fastest of them. He was worried he was going to escape. And if you say, if you see him, you'd understand why. But Tyler was sleeping on a sofa bed in a downstairs playroom. Tony suffocated the younger boy, but also stabbed him in the abdomen, according to the confession. Tony also says that Megan and himself had an agreement that everybody needed to die in order to pass over to the other side together because the apocalypse was coming. This would play into the weird prayer bead things that he had around his neck. Yeah. Or the kids had around the neck. Yeah, the rosary beads. Tony also said that Megan stabbed herself and then failed to kill herself, so he suffocated her to death with a pillow. Tony also suffocated Breezy to death, according to his confession. The dog. The yeah. dog. Why did he kill the dog? Yeah. He allegedly said he put all of the bodies in the master bedroom where he stayed until law enforcement found him. The ME gets on the stand and we learn a bit more about everyone, how everybody died. Zoe, the youngest child, was more decomposed, likely because she was wrapped in more blankets than the others. It made her autopsy harder to do. The cause of death for Zoe was homicidal violence of unspecified means in association with Benadryl toxicity. She did not appear to have any injuries and yet if it had rolled on top of her, I would have thought she would have had some broken ribs at least. They were not able to determine whether she'd been smothered because of the decomposition. Alec had one stab wound to his abdomen. It was four inches deep, but it hadn't hit any vital organs and there was no hemorrhaging. That meant Alec was stabbed after he died. Tyler also had one stab wound in his abdomen. Like his brother's stab wound, there was no evidence of blood or hemorrhaging in his abdominal cavity. Megan had two stab wounds that went at least eight inches deep into the abdominal cavity and she did have hemorrhaging, meaning she was alive when stabbed, but they couldn't say if it was self-inflicted. A crime lab analyst said on the stand that the knife of a, uh, the handle of a knife found in the master bedroom with the bodies, they tested it and it contained a mixture of DNA from three people which was all of them, and any one of the family could have been contributors. 
a veterinary forensic pathologist and a, a University of Florida associate professor tells jurors he did an autopsy on Breezy, the dog. Breezy was a small 10-pound female dog with short curly hair. She was severely decomposed. She did not die of natural causes, he said, but they could not find evidence of smothering or suffocation. And again, another University of Florida professor and a chief of the Division of Forensic Medicine testifies he can't definitely state the Benadryl found in Megan and her children were the toxicological causes of death as a concentration of Benadryl changed as the body decomposes. Could have caused, as we said, fatigue, lethargy and possibly a coma. But the Benadryl concentration was described as remarkable and significant. The prosecution case rested on the Wednesday, which shocked everyone, including the defence. They then tried to ask for Tony's acquittal, standard tactics on the basis of don't ask, don't get, which was denied. Then Tony takes a stand in his own defence. He did what they all do. He showed the jury who he really was. Arrogant and nasty. Hostile. He blamed his wife for everything said he came home and found them all dead and he didn't remember anything about his initial interviews at all where he said he'd taken a knife that had fallen from a bookcase and stabbed one of his sons. He kept interrupting the prosecutor or giving her outright hostile stares and the arrogant, I'm not looking at you face, that didn't go down well. He kept doing the fake crying, the screwing up of his face to show emotions. They were all fleeting, although he did manage to squeeze a few tears out now and again, and he didn't wipe them away as most people would, but he left them glistening on his cheek. It's really quite a thing to watch him. Lots of people picked up on him saying on the stand that my wife killed her kids, not my kids or our kids which some interpreted it as he had no actual emotional connection to the children, which would be classic annihilator, wouldn't it? Turned out he was hurting that bad for money. He cashed checks one of his children got for either Christmas or their birthdays when they were dead. There was a lot made in the press about the so-called pudding pie made with Benadryl that Megan made and fed to the children, but he said he didn't eat any of it. Also, according to him, Megan knew nothing about any of the money problems or the federal case. So why was the best way out to kill everyone? What was the reason behind it all? Because his wife was unwell? Not buying any of that. In his initial police interview, he said that he'd watched videos on the apocalypse and the end of the world, which would support his original argument of a suicide pact. Yet on the stand, he denied it. He didn't watch anything like that. There's no mention if investigators ever found evidence he did watch it, so I'm, I'm not even sure if they looked to see that. He was his only witness, and not a good one. The prosecution initially said that they would call up to 70 witnesses, but actually only called five. The speed that they rested their case was suspected to have thrown the defence for a loop, as they didn't have time to prepare Tony for his own evidence based on what had been said in court and that's maybe why he made a mess of it and the fact that the prosecution realized he had such a hatred for the female prosecutor so by getting her to ask him questions when he reacted badly she didn't challenge him she showed the jury who he was 
You could see his body language change when he looked to the jury to when he looked at the prosecutor. It was fascinating. It really was. And I've actually linked all the videos for this in the show notes. The trial started Monday and on the Wednesday it's all over. The jury are sent out to deliberate around 1pm. By 7pm they have a unanimous verdict. After initial deadlock for the first 10 minutes and everybody in the court's going, what do you mean you're deadlocked? You've only been in there 10 minutes. So the judge sends them back out and they come back at 7 o'clock at night. He is found guilty on all four charges of first degree murder as well as the animal cruelty charge. The judge sentenced Anthony Tote to four consecutive life sentences. He also gave the maximum sentence for the animal abuse charge, which is one year. It's not a lot, but it's the best justice for Breezy. So four consecutive life terms, he's not getting out. And I've got questions. Why didn't he renew his medical licence? Would it not go through as he was being investigated for fraud? That would have been federal. So would it have screwed his licences up in the other states? He claimed in that call or a letter that he had the best defence attorney in the state, yet he was basically what they call indigent. He had nothing. So was his family paying for it or was he blowing smoke? Just talking out of his ass, isn't he? Yeah. I said briefly that the children were homeschooled. So why were the children homeschooled if Megan had so many illnesses? Surely it would have been easier for her to cope if they were at regular school. If she can't get them there, possibly then they can't do that. And then if she's at home anyway. Also, I've never seen it anywhere where it was confirmed that Megan did have all these illnesses. He was very, very disparaging on the stand about um, it, because he he was a physical therapist. He understood medical terms and he was basically saying that Lyme disease is all in the mind. It was quite odd. And if she didn't have these illnesses, why were they being made up? by him there was also a brief mention somewhere that Megan was excited about a possible move to Orlando again if she had planned on killing everyone and then herself why would she be excited about moving was Orlando being sold to her as a better option with him knowing that they would be evicted something to make you think if your foreign language skills are as rusty as mine quote from the former prosecutor on Robert's trial yeah, he was discussing Tony's case. He said... That's his dad. Yes. He said, one of the quirks I remember from the case is the name Tote. It's spelt T-O-D-T, but pronounced Tote. The D is silent. Not a common name. It's German. You know what Tote means in German? Death. I had a really quick look and it's possibly wrong. The translation is dead, but I guess it could be interchangeable. It's, it's no better either way. And the defence also managed to get mention of that difference, that the name, the Germanic meaning, blocked at Tony's trial. They didn't want any influence in the German from the German I mean, name. Yeah, it's just a surname. Why would that matter? Yeah, but it's the fact it was death or dead. And jurors can be stupid. We know yeah, this. I know they're the average people, aren't they? Average people are pretty dense. Mm. So as I said, I watched a lot of the trial online. I'll link the videos in the show notes, but fair warning. Is that what you were watching that one time? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. It's about four hours worth and it's not a, not all of it. Lots edited out, but it's really dry in places where there are constant objections and slowing things down. But even so, three days instead of two weeks is quite something. By the trial, he'd lost a lot of weight, but he's still obese. 
he swaggers and it's the only way to describe his walk and he has a half smirk on his face as well a lot of the time it's an arrogant look sort of why are we going through this charade did he take after his father yeah remember at his father's trial the prosecutor called him cold calculating callous and arrogant which he really didn't like and his son's the same it oozed from him Yet, there are a lot of family and friends that apparently state he was a lovely guy. He was one of those ones, maybe, did he have a face for public consumption and a different one at home? Didn't hear from any of his employees that he dumped out of jobs by just not showing up and closing his practices and probably landed them in a whole load of trouble with his medical fraud. Why did he do it? Couldn't have been for any insurance money as the scheme was so harebrained no one would fall for it. You... You've got dead bodies in your house. You can't. How can you claim insurance for that? You, no. Was it about pride? The family annihilation aspect. Couldn't tell them that they were all broke. And he was likely to be going to prison because of the fraud. He could have maybe fled like some of these annihilators do. But he hadn't yet possibly got to that point. So live he with He doesn't it. have any money to flee. So where would he go? Yeah. Short yeah. of Alaska, there's no way he really can go. Yeah, uh, that's just not normal. I said that the family and friends said he was a lovely guy, and yet I couldn't find... I found that line in some of the reports, but I couldn't find any quotes. Nobody, his dad didn't appear as a defence witness, his mother didn't appear, his sister didn't appear. He had nobody. He was his only defence witness. It probably, probably brings too many memories back from when his dad did it. So yeah. they're, they're not going to want to return. But why did he write to his father when he was in jail? Because he's going through a similar thing. And I imagine it's, it's a weird connection he could try to make. People do weird things in times of stress, don't they? I, I could I could see that. It's, Dad, I'm in a weird place. You've done something similar. Help me, possibly. What did yeah. you do? There are aspects of it that confuse me. This religion possible links that doesn't seem to have been explored anywhere. The fact is that they were living in celebration, which had these six churches plus two extra congregations, and it was a tiny little town. The fact that the children had rosary beads on them. And if they are homeschooled, they're going to be incredibly insular and kind of expose that stuff anyway. That's very typical cult behaviour. Uh, yeah, there's, there's something odd. There's not, a, there's not an awful lot of information about Megan out there. It mainly comes from him. But... Again, we talk about family annihilators, which is all about power and control. They have massive issues. We know this. And the fact is that Megan was two years younger than him. She met him at high school. He goes off to university. She goes to the same university. She studies exactly the same as him. Is it the slightly older boyfriend telling her... What to do. What to do. Stay with me forever. I'm just left with more questions. I can't... I'd like to know more, but... We've covered a case before where someone had been, from the outside, quite successful, and then everything came crashing down, and then he killed his family because he couldn't be seen as a... What we suspected was he couldn't be seen as a failure. Could be a similar thing from this. Yeah. I don't think you could really go back and blame his trauma as a child on this now because it's been so long from it. I know he's done something very similar, or attempted his... Or did do something that his dad attempted to do. So it is weirdly tangentially linked, but you don't know if it's a genetic aspect where he could have some weird polymorphism, means his brain doesn't work in a certain kind of way and that makes him more likely to do certain things. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right because he certainly does come across with the same attitude as his father. 
this arrogance and this coldness. And if you watch any of the YouTube videos that I've linked, you instinctively do not like the man on the stand. He sort of turns to face his defence attorney. They ask him a question. He turns to look at the jurors. He swivels his chair to look at the jurors and gives them... It's not even answering, answering the question to them. It's, it's like he's giving them a lecture. These are the facts and you will believe me. And then when you see the clips where the prosecution are asking him questions, he's got his chair facing his defence attorney and he looks over his shoulder at the prosecutor. He doesn't turn to look at them. And then when he's maybe answering another question and the prosecutor maybe objects to something the defence has asked him, he pulls this look on his face, and I've seen it on many an adult's face when I was a child. It was the pursed lips, how dare you interrupt me, you're going to be in trouble when I get you home kind of look. He's just completely and utterly odious. <laughs> so finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Megan, aged 42. Alec, aged 13. Tyler, aged 11. Zoe, aged four and breezy the dog so that's another podcast thank you very much for listening this potentially could be the first podcast on patreon we don't actually know if it is and you've listened to it please let us know because we want to see how it is it might be ass we don't know and yeah we'll see you next time you can find us on twitter and instagram at murder me monday podcast and email us at murder me monday podcast at gmail.com we'll see you next time much love peace bye